Welcome to Future of Freedom. I'm your host, Scott Bertram. Future of Freedom is a production of America's Talking Network. You can check out all of our great podcasts at americastalking.com. To support great podcasts like this one, please donate by clicking the link in the show description. We bring you interviews today from different sides of the debate over the conservative approach to ESG investing. In a little bit, we'll be joined by Julius Krein. He is editor at American Affairs. Find more at americanaffairsjournal.org. First, we talk with Jeremy Kidd, associate professor of law at Drake University. Jeremy, thanks so much for joining us here on Future of Freedom. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. We're talking about the conservative approach to ESG, and those are three letters many people have heard and perhaps have discussed, but maybe don't know exactly what it entails. When we talk about ESG and ESG investing and what we'll discuss today, how do you define it in your mind? Uh, for me, ESG, I mean, obviously the letters themselves stands for, stand for environmental, social, and governance, and it is an effort by some to shift the focus of corporations away from strictly being on shareholder shareholder benefit to a broader view, a what some people refer to as a stakeholder view. And stakeholder can be as broad or as narrow as the advocate wants it to be for the purposes of their argument. So there's a very direct and stark line in a piece you wrote for the Heritage Foundation, heritage.org, that stakeholder capitalism, and ESG as an example, often leads to theft. How does that occur, and why is it allowed if it's theft? Well, so if you think about the corporation, the corporation emerged as a way of helping individuals aggregate their wealth to do more with it, to achieve you know bigger goals. Now, it in a capitalistic society, in a free market society, that means that they are benefiting society as well. I mean, Adam Smith told us this centuries ago. Mm -hmm. um, so we have, the, the, if we have the idea that the people using their wealth to generate more wealth in a capital in a uh, competitive market benefits everyone else, that we we should want people to be able to aggregate their wealth to do bigger bigger projects, more. Uh, innovative projects, riskier projects. But when they aggregate their wealth, they they lose control, direct control over it. I mean, corporations are run by managers and those managers have a very complicated task. I don't want to downplay that at all. They have to balance the needs of a lot of different groups. But most of those groups, the interest that the managers have to protect is the legal right to have the contracts enforced that those, in, uh, those outside groups entered into with the corporation. Everything that's left after all of those legal, binding, enforceable contracts have been met belongs to the shareholders. They are sometimes dismissively referred to as the residual claimant, which basically means the pool of assets after everyone else has been paid. That belongs to the shareholders. And ESG effectively wants to take that pool of resources and dole it out to preferred stakeholder groups, whether that be labor unions, whether that be government, whether it be community groups, all of those have one thing in common. They are not the people who own those assets. The people who invested in the corporation own those assets to take money that belongs to them and give it to anyone else is just theft. That's We've, we've long had a name for that. We just don't want to use it in this particular context because it makes us sound like terrible troglodytes who, who don't believe in the sort of social progress that our, our betters have envisioned for us. 
And is that in essence what you mean later on when you say that ESG creates a multiple masters problem? Sort of. Uh, it's a related issue, but the, the multiple masters problem is a, is a fascinating one where if you have multiple masters, you don't have to, you don't actually have to abide by the commands of either one. Mm-hmm. Because when one of them comes to you and says, why didn't you do what I told you to? Well, I was just, I was working for that other guy. So, you know, I, I can get back to you a little bit later. And then the other guy comes and said, you didn't do what I asked you to do either. Oh, no, no. See, I was working for master number one. And so you can continually play off um, one against the other and never actually look out for the interests of either one of those masters. Now, the, the actual owners of those assets are the shareholders. And when shareholders come calling and say, now, dear director, why was it exactly that you didn't maximize our return last, last quarter? And the individual, you know, the, the director says, well, no, I, I, I appreciate that you have those concerns. What I was working on last quarter was environmental progress. So I, instead of looking out for your interests, I looked out for the interests of the, the Sierra Club or any number of other environmental groups. Mm-hmm. But in the case, you know, if the, if the environmental group comes later on and says, why aren't you doing a good job for the environment? They can turn around and say, well, you know, this quarter I was working for the benefit of the labor unions. And there's just no accountability for the directors under a multiple masters problem. They can do whatever they want. What do you make of the argument that perhaps they are maximizing profits in a way by steering the company away from potentially dangerous situations, whether it be boycotts or bad publicity from the green movement or from labor unions? Does that hold any water? I think it, it can. I think it's perfectly legitimate to, to envision uh, a future, and, and I'm not sitting in the seat of the directors, to envision a future where a particular e- one particular ESG action can maximize profits in the long run. But as we explained in the piece, the likelihood that the director knows enough information to be able to, to correctly gauge what of these various risks that the ESG proponents uh, propose or the, the boycotts that they threaten, to have any... Well, we, we run into the same type of problem that economists have talked about for years in terms of what's called the knowledge problem. And usually we use that in terms of government agents, just they don't know enough to manage the economy. The complexities of the economy are just far beyond the capacity of any governmental agent. And so economists have warned about that for years. And I I believe that we run into a similar problem when it comes to managers of a corporation who are trying to anticipate the level of the intensity of preference, both for proponents of ESG and opponents of ESG, and their willingness and ability to pay, right? It's a, it very quickly becomes a complex calculation, orders of magnitude beyond the simple calculation that ESG proponents usually talk about. I have a good friend who he and I regularly get into a back and forth. And it's just, <laughs> you know, what if these, um, what if these you know, the managers of these tech companies, if they are a little more woke then they can pay those Caltech computer science graduates a little bit less. To which I respond, it may be that they're able to pay those Caltech uh, graduates a little bit less. That's, that's the very superficial analysis. But if at the same time you alienate a large chunk of your potential buying populace, 
Well, then you've just reduced your, I mean, you've, 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 you might have reduced your cost by appealing to the moral sensibilities of your new computer science employees. Mm -hmm. But you've also reduced your income, your revenues on the back end by alienating a portion of your audience. And that's a very simple analysis. But I think the the complexity of that calculus is just far beyond any director, (laughs) which makes me think that they're not actually pursuing profits. They are either avoiding the kind of negative shadow that falls on them by being the director who doesn't go along with the woke crowd, or they are providing money to the places that they actually prefer in terms of their own preference. But even that, then we're just back to theft. It's the directors taking money and giving it to the things they prefer, to the groups that they prefer. They're spending other people's money on gifts for themselves. And we would call that theft in any other context. Jeremy Kidd is with us, Associate Professor of Law at Drake University, as we talk about the conservative approach to ESG. You quote in your piece the Security and Exchange Commission chairman saying, when it comes to climate risk disclosures, investors are raising their hands and asking for more. If that's true, is the market not giving us a signal that this is something that they want? It's entirely possible that Gary Gensler has access to information (laughs) and data that I don't have. But when he says that investors are raising their hands and asking for more, I don't know whether he means BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard, the people who run those. And they are very powerful, the institutional investors. And I have no problem with institutional investing as a general rule. I think it's, it's a very stabilizing force in the market. But remember that the heads of those three major funds control a significant portion of the investment dollars, but they own, they control those dollars for the benefit of pensioners in California mm-hmm. and you know, so, you know, a, a working mother in Minnesota. And I have a hard time believing that Gary Gensler is talking about that pensioner in California <laughs> or that working mother in Minnesota when he says investors are raising their hands and asking for more. I think he's talking about Larry, Larry Fink and mm-hmm. the other heads of those funds. But that's not the I think those are two entirely separate questions. And I think Gensler and others who raise that as an issue are trying to cover the fact that they're that they are, in fact, working on behalf of large powerful investors rather than the average workaday beneficial owner of that of those dollars. You point to a trend in your piece of a decline in publicly traded companies over the past decade or so, and particularly in the past few years. Is, is ESG partially to blame for that? And, and what effect does that have on our markets and on investors? Yes. Yeah, so, so I think the what we were referring to there is that ESG and the uh, CSR corporate social responsibility and all various movements before that have over time increased the cost of being a publicly traded corporation, especially as those efforts begin to seep into government regulation. The more expensive it is to be a publicly traded company, the more likely it is that you will simply take your company private or take it, you know, take it dark as, uh, as some in the industry refer to it over time, you know, it, uh, in any particular, you know, any particular company going, going dark um, or going private may not affect the market as a whole. The market is fairly robust. Um, 
But over time, what that means is that some of the best opportunities are now no best investment opportunities are no longer available to individuals like you and I. Mm. We're not allowed to invest in private companies unless we become an accredited investor, which requires us to jump through a lot of hoops at the SEC. But the Larry Finks of the world, the uh, well, wealthy individuals of whom I have, you know, with whom I have no uh, no dispute normally. <laughs> Um, but they have uh, they have access to all of those private investment opportunities, and it creates a disparity in investing where normal average workaday people are not able to obtain the full breadth and scope of financial markets because so many of them have chosen to avoid the costs of ESG by turning private. So share share owner privacy, shareholder primacy. Why is that so central to the way that a, a an investment should operate, can operate, and why does it prove to be the best in the long haul? Well, I think that over time, and I, I do tend to be more of a Hayekian, Chestertonian um, kind of respect for traditions that emerged over time, because I think we often lose sight of the benefits um, that were the, the reasons why those institutions arose. And the institution of shareholder wealth maximization combined with the fiduciary duties that we impose upon the directors, I think are an essential element to avoiding what public choice economists call rent seeking. It's basically that corporate governance would be a cage match. It's, it's not what, uh, what Lynn Stout um, once referred to as team production. It's very, you know, this pleasant, we're just trying to coordinate. We just need to coordinate so that we can all achieve our team goals. No, it's, it's blood sport. It's cage match. Every different stakeholder group would love to exploit the other stakeholder groups if they thought they could get away with it. Mm -hmm. Now, the control in the corporation resides with the directors, which means that all of those different stakeholders are going to engage in rent-seeking. They're going to go to the directors and they're going to explain why the directors should give them money as opposed to give it somewhere else. Economists have agreed for decades that, that is, it's wasteful. The efforts put into going to the directors and trying to get a simple transfer of funds from someone else to them, that's effort that could be used to actually make something of value for the corporation or make something of value for society. So rent seeking by its nature is just wasteful. It's just that lobbying that we all kind of, you know, those special interests that we all hate when it comes to government. Mm -hmm. But those exist in the corporate context as well. And they're all rushing to the directors saying, give me that money, take it away from shareholders. No, take it away from the suppliers and give it to me. There's everyone wants to do that. And it would be wasteful and it's disruptive to the to an efficient corporate form. Shareholder wealth maximization says you can't give, you, you are required to fulfill all of your contracts, but you can't give any money to anyone else. Why? Because that pool of resources belongs to the shareholders and you are responsible for protecting it. And then the fiduciary duties come in to kind of buttress that, uh, that principle. That, it, so when you have those two institutions in place, rent seeking is by nature kept to a bare minimum. The wasteful, you know, infighting, cage match, blood sport over who gets what is kept to a bare minimum. Why? Because it's really simple. You entered into a contract, mm -hmm. you fulfill the contract. Everything that's left over goes into that pile over there. That's for the shareholders. It's a really simple process. Once we get rid of that, once ESG and stakeholder capitalism become the norm, there's no 
that simple system, simple and efficient system falls away. And what we get is the chaos of, you know, the, uh, what is it, the UFC, those, the big, you <laughs> yeah. know, the octagon. Yes. Suddenly, suddenly we go from a nice corporate boardroom to the octagon. And I'm not sure anyone actually wants that, but that's where they're taking us. One final question for Jeremy Kidd. Does all of this end in some sort of government action, whether it be a ban or some other uh, protection for investors? Is ESG an invisible danger of sorts for investors from which they need to be protected? Oh, I really hate the idea of, you know, fill in the blank, whatever it is, is a danger from which someone needs to be protected and government <laughs> is the one to do it. I really don't like that as the outcome. I, I, and I apologize if if my answers today have made it seem like that's the only way to achieve it. Ideally, um, what we would have is state and, state and federal judges who had the backbone necessary to simply stand up to the, you know, the, the people say the tide of history and say, no, the, the ESG stakeholder capitalism, that has no place in our corporate context. If we would do that, that would probably be enough. Even if we don't have that, um, what I would like is for the government not to mandate ESG because, mm -hmm. and, and we're starting to see ESG creep into federal mandates, the reporting requirements, Department of Labor, the SEC, a variety of other places. I expect we'll see greater pushes over time for that. If there isn't a federal mandate or even a state level mandate for these types of activities, then the market's even though they may not be as robust as we would like with Larry Fink and you know, Vanguard State Street, you know, those, uh, those institutional investors, they have an, a, a very large amount of the, of the market right now, and they're a lot more activist than they used to be. But even with that slight distortion in the market, markets still are very resilient, and they will punish bad behavior on the part of corporations. If corporations are persistently underperforming and share and there are at least some shareholders shareholders out there who want to make you want a corporation that will maintain that promise that in fact this is my money and you're going to give me a return on my money and not steal it and give it to everyone else then the markets will they will cabin that rent seeking they will punish when it gets too far out of hand it won't be the efficient markets that i would prefer as mm -hmm. a as a defender of, of free markets but they there will be a pushback. There will be some, some constraint on that rent-seeking. But the minute government begins to, uh, to enter into the, the picture and start to mandate that e ESG reporting and all of those things, that's when you'll see the market's ability to punish bad behavior begin to wane. And then, you know, at that point, saying, well, then the government might need to protect shareholders. Well, protect them from government. Mm -hmm. Right. That's usually the problem. Government creates the problem and then uses the problem as a way of intervening with even more regulation uh, in order to protect uh, the, the individuals who have only been hurt because the government chose to act in the first place. Jeremy Kidd, Associate Professor of Law at Drake University. Jeremy, thanks so much for joining us here on Future of Freedom. Thank you very much. Now to hear another side of the argument about the conservative approach to ESG investing, we talk with Julius Krein. He's editor of American Affairs. Find more at AmericanAffairsJournal.org. Julius, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Talking today about ESG, environmental, social, and governance investing. You wrote a piece recently in which you begin by saying there are serious questions surrounding ESG and 
those on the right and conservatives are right to highlight them. What are some of those questions raised by ESG that, that need to be addressed? Well, there's actually a number of questions, not not just raised by conservatives. Um, just to start generally, the SEC is currently sort of cracking down on ESG funds or funds that claim to be ESG funds uh, that don't actually um, incorporate some of these metrics and standards. Um, there's a lot of haziness about what the, the metrics actually are. Um, different uh, ESG rating agencies, uh, for lack of a better term, um, come up with widely different uh, grades and, and metrics and scores um, for, for companies. Um, there's very little standardization. There's a lot of confusion. So that's just the uh, sort of non-political issues. Then you get on into the political side, um, and I think there's no question that ESG, as as currently uh, constructed or as it as it arose, um, was was largely shaped by a, by a left liberal um, agenda, um, emphasizing things like fossil fuel divestment, board diversity, corporate diversity, uh, things like that. Um, issue, you know, no issues that I think conservatives would would consider. Uh, top priorities, whether that's issues around uh, national defense, national security, family friendliness, and so on. Um, and I think, you know, conservatives often claim and point out that ESG is this kind of political project to shift capital away from, from their states and regions and, and into uh, basically left, left-wing causes and, and skew, skew investment in, in those directions. You argue that most prominent conservative critics of ESG come at it from a standpoint uh, that they are rejecting the, the inclusion of, of non-fiscal questions into the calculus of investing, so essentially profits over everything else. Why won't a strategy like that work when it comes to addressing ESG? Well, this is where it gets complicated because even though I think it's clear that ESG is politicized in, in its areas of focus and emphasis, it, it doesn't actually, at least in its own self-understanding, the way it writes the rules for itself, it doesn't actually exclude uh, shareholder value um, or profit considerations. Um, the way ESG is self-conception works is it considers itself a sort of risk management framework uh, to help companies manage risks that, that do or could impact the bottom line. The politicization comes in not from denying that profits are important or that the company's focus should be on return to shareholders. The politicization rather comes in from it only selects risk factors, um, again, that have kind of a clear left liberal slant. So a lot of focus on, say, environmental risk um, and things like that, not very much focus on uh, what you might call freedom of speech or, say, political diversity within a company. Um, so that's where that kind of politicization comes in. And that's why simply saying, well, we need to talk about profits over politics, um, I don't believe is an effective strategy because ESG already claims to be doing that. And, you know, technically um, it is. You argue further that an emphasis on profits or an emphasis on shareholder value inevitably leads to something like the framework of ESG. Can you talk a little more about that? Yeah, I covered it at some length in, in my piece, um, but there's a number of, of factors that um, go into this and also a, a long and, and sort of complicated history. Um, but basically, the, the modern corporate governance framework arose you know, in the 70s and 80s. 
And the goal at that time was basically to, to shift power and corporate governance towards shareholders. Um, so, and, and away from corporate executives. So one of the things that they did um, is they gave institutional investors the right to vote the shares um, rather than the underlying beneficial owners. So if you're a, a mutual fund um, or whatever, uh, now that mutual fund manager is going to vote the corporate proxies um, rather than the underlying individual um, investor in the mutual fund, the underlying beneficial owner. Uh, what that means is that the activist investor now has a much smaller group of constituents to organize when it wants to challenge management. Um, these are professional fund managers, so they're arguably a more sophisticated constituency as well. It's much easier for uh, the activist investor to, to amass that majority of shareholders and, and win the shareholder votes against management. Now, there's a lot that goes into that, but for our purposes, what that has meant is that um, funds like BlackRock, Proxy advisors like ISS um, have a lot more power than they otherwise would, and they actually have that power um, largely as a result of reforms uh, during the Reagan administration meant to strengthen the power of shareholders. Other factors uh, as well, just the rise of passive index investing um, lends itself to the construction of frameworks like ESG. After all, if you're an S&P 500 index fund, you don't actually care about the individual performance of any one company. You don't want to spend a lot of time and, mm -hmm. and resources trying to, to, to evaluate all these corporate decisions that come up. So you're going to outsource that function to a, a firm like ISS, uh, a proxy advisor. And then, of course, just as the financial sector itself has has uh, expanded and funds have proliferated, um, there's a natural incentive for fund managers to come up with ways to differentiate themselves, to, to market their product, essentially. Not everybody can outperform. Many, many fund managers never really outperform. But what they can offer is sort of a bespoke fund uh, investment selection process uh, or whatever, and an ESG framework um, you know, is one thing that makes that possible and, and frankly justifies higher fees. Julius Crime with us from American Affairs as we talk about ESG. As we look at responses and potential responses to ESG, there's an idea that, well, we'll just ban. We'll ban ESG from the ability to be considered as one of the factors. Is, is that simply a, a backhanded way of empowering government to allow government officials to say, hey, this is what you can consider, this is what you can't consider? Again, because ESG structures itself as a risk management framework. It's not saying, company X, you should give up on profits and turn yourself into an NGO. What it's saying is, as you're pursuing shareholder value, you need to consider, say, these environmental risk factors. Um, and, and actually, the ESG people have, they've done a lot of work to sort of justify, at least you know, superficially, why all these risk factors and, and why their ESG framework actually does benefit the bottom line. And so telling companies you have to focus on profits, they'll say, well, fine, we're already doing that. ESG is actually just a way to focus on profits. So if you really wanted to regulate that away, you would have to, you know, the state would have to come in and say, well, you're actually not allowed to consider these environmental issues, even if you think it has a connection to the bottom line. Um, and, and that's just something that the current and, and even past corporate governance frameworks in the U.S. And, and regulatory frameworks have never really contemplated. Our system is set up so, so it's basically as long as the company is going through the right process, the state isn't sort of getting in and saying, well, you, 
you made the wrong decision on that. You lost money for shareholders. Therefore, you broke the law. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you could imagine there's all, all kinds of you know, issues and judgment calls that nobody really knows the answers to. So our, our corporate governance process in general, did the company, you know, have the right safeguards in place? Did they have an independent process? Obviously, if the CEO's, you know, writing checks to his brother or something, <laughs> that's a process violation. But it's not set up to sort of say, you know, get very specific on actual business decisions. And that's what you would have to do if you wanted to say ban companies from considering, uh, you know, how, how how they weigh environmental risk or or other risk factors associated with ESG. So I, I think that's a bit of a non-starter. I don't think those efforts have really uh, gone anywhere. And you can sort of just reiterate that companies need to uh, maximize value um, for shareholders and follow the process, but ESG already fits within that. There are a number of red state governors that have been pulling capital from ESG funds uh, in in Texas and and West Virginia elsewhere. Is this not a successful strategy to begin pulling money away from funds that rely on on ESG? Well, that's a that's a a different approach, and I think a more serious one. States, governments can use their power as investors, not as regulators, but as investors um, to to decide where they want to allocate capital to reward certain kinds of of allocations um, or or regional development or whatever. Um, The issue there is is not so much that um, the states, it's not with the approach itself, but that it hasn't gone very far. The last number I saw is that states in total pulled something like $8 billion dollars with a B out of BlackRock. This is an $8 trillion asset manager. There are actually something like $30 billion worth of ESG funds, uh, ESG bonds to the oil and gas sector itself. Um, So this is just a very small amount of capital. And then even among that, um, a lot of that uh, $8 billion has just gone to other fund managers that have pretty much the same ESG framework as as BlackRock. So it's it's sort of a silly, um, you know, media relations game um, more than a substantive uh, challenge. To make it really successful, I, I think states um, and I suppose conservatives of the right in general would need to think through um, kind of and develop their own investment framework to, to, to include and consider the factors that they consider priorities. And again, the point is not to, to cause companies not to pursue profits, um, but simply to come up uh, with with a framework that incorporates various other concerns if and when they do impact profits. I think ESG has sort of been effective in the sense of it's amassed, you know, $30 trillion or something of, of assets um, because it it's it's a it's a good way to score companies without necessarily making something illegal. Mm-hmm. To give you a kind of rough analogy, like I, I know the rules of baseball, <laughs> and if I went out and and played for, um, you know, where you're in Michigan, uh, if I went and played for the Detroit Tigers tomorrow, I wouldn't break the rules, but I'd be a terrible baseball <laughs> player. And and that's you know a lot of companies don't necessarily break the rules. Um, but they may not be, you know, delivering uh, in terms of a number of other considerations that don't necessarily show up in either conventional um, financial analytics or current ESG analytics. And I think if, if you know, you want to weigh those concerns, um, you need to have your own framework uh, in order to do that. And if you did that, um, a much larger 
amount of money from red states uh, or or individuals um, could be deployed uh, behind these priorities. A little deeper into that, perhaps, you mentioned, I think, specifically in the Texas example, that the governor there is not just uh, staking himself out to an anti-ESG platform, but is having a, a pro-policy uh, goal in, in taking these actions. Does having a, a, a positive uh, argument as opposed to a negative argument also impact the way that this discussion can move forward? Yeah, I, again, I think that's that's the issue is Republicans or conservatives know on the one hand that ESG is politicized and, and often hostile, not only to their kind of values in an abstract sense, but, you know, if West Virginia and you have a coal industry or in Texas and you have an oil industry, these frameworks can be very prejudicial uh, and, and hostile to your own local economy and, and harmful to your own economic development. But unless you have a positive way to reward capital allocators who invest in those regions or those industries, um, sort of simply saying companies should pursue profits is, is not an effective strategy for all the reasons we discussed earlier. And the final possibility you mentioned in the piece is the gradual unraveling of shareholder primacy. We talked a little about this earlier in the conversation and those changes from a few decades ago. What would it look like to do that? Yeah, well, that's a very interesting possibility. I, I think it's a remote possibility. But you saw, um, as some of these controversies intensified, BlackRock essentially announced that they would uh, take steps to, to allow the underlying beneficial owners to exercise more sway in, in voting their shares, essentially. Now, these changes thus far have been, I would say, totally cosmetic. But one could imagine a world where we move away from this sort of 1980s model of empowering shareholders by, by empowering institutional asset managers, essentially, and, and toward a devolution of, of governance power back to underlying beneficial owners. Now, these beneficial owners will inherently be very distributed, often unsophisticated and often indifferent. I mean, when I invest in an index fund, it's not because I want to take a deep dive and get very involved in doing diligence or otherwise uh, understanding the company's governance decisions of any one company. Mm -hmm. If I wanted to do that, I wouldn't invest in the index fund. <laughs> um, so it's very likely that, that all these index investors really won't pay attention to these votes, they won't vote their shares, um, much like it was in the past. And in that sort of scenario, um, it inevitably, the, the incumbent corporate management will be uh, empowered relative to activist, advantage, uh, activist investors who want to challenge them. And, and so there, I think, you know, you could imagine a possibility where the kind of anti-ESG agitation in the name of shareholder rights actually ends up taking us back away from shareholder primacy. Julius Krein is editor of American Affairs. You can find more at AmericanAffairsJournal.org. And this essay we've been discussing is over at Compact Magazine. This CompactMag.com. It's why the right can't beat ESG. Julius, thanks so much for joining us here on The Future of Freedom. Thank you. We thank both our guests on today's program. Jeremy Kidd, Associate Professor of Law at Drake University. And Julius Krein, editor of American Affairs. Find more at AmericanAffairsJournal.org. For additional episodes of the Future of Freedom podcast and other fine podcasts from America's Talking Network, check out americastalking.com or anywhere you find your audio. Thank you for listening to Future of Freedom, presented by America's Talking Network.